invited by Jesus to join him in the wilderness. And a lot of us, we, we love to join Jesus for the exciting resurrection on Easter morning. We love to join Jesus for the fun miracles, the deliverances, the healings. Uh, and we're not always so excited to join Jesus in his wilderness experience or in the cross. But that's where he invites us to come. And so that's what the series has been about in responding to Jesus's invitation. Uh, when Jesus was in the wilderness, um, that, that's, what, uh, that, that's what Lent is all about, by the way. Uh, for the past many centuries that the Christian church has existed, uh, Lent has, all, has always been about uh, pointing us to that time uh, when Jesus was in the wilderness and inviting us to join him there uh, voluntarily. Uh, when, when Jesus was in the wilderness, and... All right. There we go. All right. When Jesus was in the wilderness, um, that's where he was uh, tested. And I think this guy might be not working or something. So, oh, it's because the, look at that. All right. Now let's see what happens. All right. Now we're cooking with gas. All right. Um, When Jesus was in the wilderness, he was uh, tested. He fasted. Pastor Steve reminded us a couple weeks ago that he also meditated on the books of Moses he prayed, and he lamented, and we are invited in this season to join him there. Uh, now, one of the great things about Lent is that Lent is practice wilderness. Uh, all of us are going to be going through the wilderness at some time or another in our lives involuntarily. Uh, where if you have uh, a loss of someone in your life, if you have a, a traumatic experience, if you have a traumatic change in your life, Uh, All those things can throw us into the wilderness against our own better judgment, against our own wishes, and we end up going through a wilderness experience. Uh, If you haven't been through a wilderness experience yet, it's probably because you are less than three years old. But if uh, you are anything over that, you have almost certainly been through a wilderness experience. And the great thing about Lent is that Lent is practice wilderness. We go there voluntarily, and we learn how to let the wilderness transform us so when we have an involuntary wilderness experience, when something, some difficulty or challenge or affliction or trial or trauma thrusts us into the wilderness, we have been trained so that that experience transforms us instead of crushes us. And, uh, and so, so Lent is a great thing uh, to practice. It's why, it's why we, the Christian church has been doing it for centuries. Um, the question, though, is when we're in the wilderness... Um, are we, see those little guys are in there, um, i just go to the next one, there we go, in the wilderness, will God find us whining, or will he find us worshiping? And so far, as we've been marching through the book of Numbers, we have uh, discovered, want to take a look at that, see if that guy uh, works, uh, we've discovered, as we've been going through the book of Numbers, that for the Israelites, God found them mostly whining. And, uh, and the question, the challenge to us is, are we going to respond the way the Israelites did, or are we going to respond the way that uh, God wants us to respond, the way that Jesus is? Seem like it's working now? Beautiful. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, go back here. So what, what about you? What about me? Are we going to respond by whining, or are we going to respond by worshiping? Uh, the real question there is, are we letting God 
transform us in the wilderness? Are we letting God transform us in the wilderness? So let's look at uh, the book of Numbers so far. Uh, So far in the book of Numbers, uh, there's been a series of lessons that the Israelites were supposed to learn uh, while they were marching through the wilderness. In the first 10 chapters, that talks about the first census and their setting out from Mount Sinai where they had received the Ten Commandments. And in that, we discover that God was trying to transform them into a holy people, people who were set aside and devoted completely to service uh, to him. Uh, We find out that God was trying to transform them into a mobilized people, people who were ready to move when God said move, who were ready to stay put when God said stay put. When God said you go this direction, they were supposed to be ready to go that direction. When God said go this direction, they were supposed to be ready to go that direction. Uh, And they were supposed to be transformed into a people of God's presence. The most defining characteristic, the most defining mark of being people of God was that uh, they were to be a people of his presence. The people around them, the nations around them said what was unique and special about them was that their God was actually with them. So that's how they were supposed to be transformed according to those first 10 chapters. Uh, According uh, to the next several sets of chapters in Uh, chapters 11 through 12, we learned about uh, the people complaining over their food, and they were whining. They wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt. Oh, I remember back when we had the leeks and the melons, and the oh, it was so much better back then. Uh, And they were complaining about this daily miracle of manna they were receiving. They they also complained about uh, their leadership. Um, Leaders were complaining about other leaders, in fact. also, chapters uh, 13 through 14, that's the story of the spies. God sent, uh, had them send 12 spies uh, into the promised land. Uh, when they came back, 10 of those 12 spies gave a negative report, and uh, the people were so discouraged by that negative report, they said, we don't want to go into the promised land, we want to go back to slavery in Egypt. Uh, and that's also the story of Korah's rebellion, one of the other leaders, chapters 16 through 17. And so we find out from, uh, from those chapters that God was trying to transform them into a dependent people, people who looked to him for all of their provision, for everything. God was trying to transform them into a trained people, people who knew how to walk with him, who knew how to follow him. He was trying to train them into a grateful people. Instead of whining and complaining about everything, God wanted to make them into people who were grateful, who appreciated what God had blessed them with. A God-fearing people. They were supposed to be transformed into a God-fearing people who didn't turn to other gods, to other idols, uh, but who feared God alone, who knew that everything came from God alone, and uh, they were supposed to be a God-fearing people. And they were, God wanted them to be a trusting people, a people who uh, uh, entrusted themselves completely to him uh, and, and trusted he was going to provide. In chapter 20, we have the story of uh, Moses being excluded from the promised land, even in spite of all of his hard work, in spite of the sacrifices he'd made, in spite of the heavy burdens he had borne, in spite of all the miracles God had done through him, because God failed to uphold God, because Moses failed to uphold God as holy in one instance and had disobeyed God in one instance, God said that he was excluded Even he was excluded from the promised land. And so we were supposed to learn from that, the Israelites were supposed to learn, uh, that God wanted to transform them into a trustfully obedient people. Now, it's a little different from just trusting. When I, uh, the lesson above where it says trusting, by that I meant they were supposed to trust that God was going to provide and care for them and protect them. That's all good. 
But in this instance with Moses, we see that the trust in God is supposed to translate into obedience. The ultimate test of whether or not we trust God is if we obey him. If we don't obey him, then we can't really say that we're trusting in him. Uh, the, the real test of whether or not uh, we trust him is if we actually obey. And then the last uh, couple stories we went through, Pastor Steve talked about the story of the bronze serpent. Uh, because of the complaining of the people, the rebellion of the people, uh, God afflicted them with poisonous snakes. Uh, but God told Moses, take a symbol of that suffering, a poisonous snake, a, a bronze snake, make, make a bronze snake, stick it up on a pole and raise it up. And if the people who are afflicted look up to that symbol of suffering, that symbol of justice, that symbol of, of righteous punishment, then they will be healed. Uh, and in the last story that Pastor Steve went over, the story of Balaam, the most powerful uh, sorcerer, of, the most powerful uh, diviner of all, uh, was defeated in his attempts to curse uh, the people of God, and it proved God was sovereign, and that even the most powerful of diviners couldn't do anything against God's people. And so from that, we learned that God was trying to transform his people into a graciously saved people. What do I mean by that? Well, Pastor Steve told us last week, a graciously saved people are a people who, where Yahweh is going to fulfill his purpose to bless his people, no matter what their most powerful enemies try, including rich kings with armies, and including the most world-famous diviner of the day, even Balaam himself, no one can stop God fulfilling his promise to bless his people. And at the same time, God won't be manipulated into our plan, we learned from last week's story. Uh, but in fact, God invites us into his plan. So where does that leave us? For these last 11 chapters, which we're going to go through today. If you want to open your Bibles, we're, we're going to touch on a few of these stories in the last 11 chapters. Book of Numbers, chapter 26. Uh, <clears throat> Book of Numbers, chapter 26, the... Israelites take a new census. Now, they had taken a census at the beginning of the book of Numbers, uh, and now here it is uh, 38 years later, and they are taking a new census. The reason they had done that, the reason they were required to take a new census was, if, if you remember, the old generation had died off. Uh, God had, back with the story about the, uh, the spies in the land, the Israelites, because they had rebelled against God, they said, God said to them, um, you're going to have to wander now for instead of going straight to the promised land, which would have taken them a few weeks to get to, uh, you're going to have to wander around, apparently aimlessly, uh, for, for a total of 40 years, th uh, 38 more years from this point. And uh, in that time, the older generation of unbelieving, stiff-necked, stubborn adults was going to die off, and all of the kids that the adults were afraid, the, the adults had said, oh, we don't want to go any further because we're so afraid for our kids. God said, you adults are going to die off, the kids are going to grow up, and the kids are going to inherit the promised land. And uh, so they had, so now it's the new generation, they've all grown up, and uh, so God uh, is now, requires them to take a new census, and that was for two reasons. One, so they could count the fighting men, 
uh, know how many uh, men were ready to fight because they were going to go face battle in the promised land. And then also so that God would know how to distribute the land uh, when, or, or the people would know how to distribute the land uh, so that the larger groups, the larger families had more land and the smaller families had less land. Um, <clears throat> chapter 27, really fascinating story in chapter 27. This is one of, one of the reasons I, I just one of these hidden gems uh, in uh, the Old Testament that I just, I just absolutely love. Uh, Zelophehad had, uh, had been in that older generation. He died. And uh, he didn't have any sons, and so his four daughters went to Moses and said, uh, Moses, what about us? Are, is our family not going to get any inheritance just because our, our father only had daughters? And Moses took it to the Lord, and the Lord said, they're, yeah, they're right. Make sure that they have land. And so from that point on, they created uh, a system to make sure that women were able to uh, inherit land just as much as men were able to inherit land. Uh, <clears throat> this is also the part of the story where they explain that Joshua, who had been Moses' assistant up to this point, Joshua was going to take over as leader once Moses uh, had died, as, as had been promised. Um, chapters 28 through 30 talks about uh, offerings and vows, and uh, it goes through all the different kinds of offerings, uh, daily offerings, weekly offerings, monthly offerings, yearly offerings. Uh, chapter 31, Pastor Steve talked about that last week. That's uh, the vengeance of the Israelites upon the Midianites and the, Mo- the Moabites. Uh, chapter 32, um, really interesting story. Uh, the Reubenites and the Gadites, two of the big tribes, uh, they said that they, uh, they they saw all the land on the east side of the River Jordan. Originally, the whole land was supposed to be the west side of the River Jordan. And the Reubenites and the Gadites said, hey, this land's really nice for herd, for our herds, and we've got a lot of herds. Can we stay here? At first, Moses was like, that is a terrible idea. That is stupid. You're going to discourage everybody if you don't go with us. Reubenites and Gadites said, well, hey, we'll go with you. We'll send our fighting men with you, help you conquer the land, and then can we come back? And Moses said, okay, we'll do it that way. Um, reluctantly, but we, we'll do it. And then chapter 33, um, now, if, if you ever wanted to, uh, you know, some, if you're like me, you're Pastor Steve, and you're like a super kind of Bible geek, and you love this kind of stuff, which all of you should, by the way, but anyway, uh, um, this chapter is great for this. This takes you through place by place by place where the Israelites went in their 40, 40 years of wandering. So it's a it's a really uh, cool chapter uh, that way. We're not going to go over it now, but it reminds them also of their mission, uh, following of, of the mission to conquer the promised land. Uh, chapter 34 is a really important chapter for the rest of the entire Bible because uh, it keeps referring back to this chapter. This is where they they uh, establish the future boundaries of the Israelites once they take the promised land. Uh, what's, one of the things that's interesting about, to note about this chapter is that the Israelites never fully took over the promised land. Uh, and if uh, you keep reading the rest of the Old Testament, you find out that they never actually, there, there are certain reasons usually related to their disobedience that they never actually took the full land they were supposed to take. Uh, chapter 35, really interesting uh, special cities are set aside for the Levites. The Levites were not given physical land as their inheritance like the rest of the tribes because God said, I am your inheritance. And so they, uh, but, but he did provide for them by setting up cities for them to live in and then the pasture lands immediately around the cities. And uh, also these special cities of refuge and the cities of refuge were, that's really important, another sign of God's mercy. Uh, you see, back in those days, and in fact throughout most of the world, most of history, and even still today in many parts of the world, 
if, if there's a suspicion that someone's committed a crime in most parts of the world and throughout most of history, they're not brought before an impartial jury. Uh, what normally happens is the rest of the people in the village catch a, 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 a rumor and that this person may have stolen something or committed a crime, and they form a mob, and then you've got uh, vigilante mob justice. Uh, and, of course, we know that usually doesn't end up being a very just solution. So knowing that's how often how people are uh, um, suspected uh, villains are treated, um, God set up this system where there's these cities of refuge, and if somebody was accused of, especially specifically of murder, um, that they were able to flee to those cities of refuge and be safe there until they could set up a, uh, a, a, a fair tribunal uh, to try the case. <clears throat> uh, fascinating that you know, one, of the, one of the only ancient uh, civilizations to have anything, anything like that. Uh, chapter um, 36, the last chapter, uh, their God, the, the, I think that's interesting that the very last chapter in uh, Numbers, once again, God reaffirms this special provisions to make sure that women could inherit uh, land just like, uh, just like men could in ancient Israel. So if you look at all of these together, what lessons or what main theme can emerge from all of this? Well, there's, there's a lot. But one of the things I think that one of the lessons or themes that emerges from all of this is the idea that God provides everything for everyone. Uh, God completely provides everything that's needed. God provides land, as we saw in chapters 33 and 34. Uh, he does this, the census in chapter 26. He provides special land for the Reubenites and the Gadites. So their physical needs are taken care of. They can sustain themselves. God provides justice uh, through the, the story of vengeance in chapter 31, but also the, the, the way he provides so that the accused can be safe from, uh, uh, from vigilante mob violence. Um, God also provides victory. He promises success, successful conquest in chapter 34. God provides leadership in uh, chapter 30, excuse me, chapter 27 when he raises up uh, when he raises up Joshua to replace Moses. God provided for the Levites through the offerings um, uh, in uh, chapters 28 and 29. The offerings, all that all that meat that from the animals that were slaughtered, and all of the grain offerings, and all of the first fruits. All that food went, it was the Levites who actually ate that food. Uh, and so they were provided for through that. Uh, God uh, provided uh, cities for them, uh, for the Levites. And, and then God made this uh, special provision uh, through the story of Azalophad's daughter to make sure that women were, were provided for, which, which by the way, that, that was quite unique in the ancient world. In fact, that was quite unique uh, throughout, <laughs> if, if you were to survey all of history, almost nobody has ever... Uh, made provision uh, for women to be able to st sustain themselves. Uh, and ancient Israel is one of the only places uh, that, that did that. So I, I, I just, I love that when we see those hidden gems like that. So, so God provides for everybody. He does it in a just way. He establishes justice through this provision for everybody. Uh, so I think that that is wonderful. An application for that is, is really the same as Pastor Steve uh, brought to us last week. And that is, do not fear and don't manipulate to get your way. Don't fear and don't manipulate to get your way because you don't need to. There's no need to. God takes care of everything. He takes care of our physical provision. He takes care of justice. He takes care of victory and leadership. And he takes care of, of all the different groups of people 
uh, at, we find out in the book of Deuteronomy, which we'll get into later this summer, uh, it says that there's to be no poor among you. God provided ways for there to be no poor among the Israelites, um, which, is, which is amazing. So because of that, we don't need to fear and we don't need to manipulate. Um, but of course, as Pastor Steve reminded us last week, there is a important uh, there, there's, there's a sort of a condition here. We don't need to fear or manipulate if we fear God and follow his plan so we can receive his promise. If we, if we don't fear him and if we don't follow him, we can't have that assurance that he is going to take care of us. And, uh, and of course, that's when we're tempted to manipulate, manipulate people, manipulate situations uh, through all kinds of different means to try to get what we want. Because that manipulation comes out of fear. So, what, how we're going to wind down this series is I'm going to ask some questions to uh, get us to reflect. Uh, try to think about what has God been showing us in this series. Um, I've already talked and mentioned these different lessons that the Israelites were supposed to learn in the wilderness but which they did not learn, as we discovered through, their, through their, their cautionary tale, through their poor example. We discovered they did not learn these lessons, uh, even though they were supposed to learn these lessons. Um, and my question to you is, are you letting the wilderness, whether it's the voluntary wilderness of Lent, or whether it's the involuntary wilderness of some kind of affliction or loss or grief or trauma, are you letting the wilderness transform you and are we as a, as a group, as, are we as a community letting uh, the wilderness transform us as a community in these different ways to become a people of his presence? Are we letting the Lord transform us in such a way that other people outside of us think, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I really agree with all that Christian stuff, but, you know, it really seems like their God, whatever that is, is actually with them. Do people notice that about us? Do people notice that about you and me individually? Um, are we a holy people, a people who have actually adjusted ourselves and made room for God to be with us, adjusted our lives so that God would be with us? Are we a mobilized people, a people who, when God says move, we move. When God says go there, we go there. When God says stay put, we stay put. Are we a dependent and trained people, people who uh, inst- are, are, are we looking to the Lord to provide and care for us, or are we always manipulating, are we always doing a side hustle to try to uh, make sure, uh, twist God's arm or, or someone else's arm to try to make sure that we have our needs met? Are we a grateful and God-fearing people? Is, are we letting the wilderness transform us that way? Or when things happen or things don't happen the way we want them to happen, are, are, are we reacting with complaints and with whining. And God-fearing, are, are we God-fearing, are we turning to other gods uh, and other idols to get our needs met? Are we, a tr- are, is God, are we letting God transform us into a trustfully obedient people and a graciously saved people? I'm going to remind us again in the book of Deuteronomy, which we'll get to in the summer, uh, God reveals to the Israelites exactly what they were supposed to learn. Uh, they were supposed to learn, first lesson they were supposed to learn, 
is this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, then you shall watch yourselves lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Now, this, of course, I have highlighted what Jesus quoted when he was being tempted in his wilderness experience. When he was being tempted in his wilderness experience, Satan came to him at this point. He'd already been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. His body was completely spent. He had uh, nothing left inside of him. Uh, and, and Satan came to him and, uh, you know, said, uh, if, if uh, you know, you're really uh, the son of God, you know, he said, he said all, all these kingdoms and all their splendor can be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. And, uh, and, and Jesus responded with this, by quoting this phrase. And when Satan comes to us and says, you know what? You can have all the good stuff in this world. If, and now he usually doesn't put it quite so plainly to bow down and worship him. But, if, but he tries to kind of allure us into looking to something besides the living God. Uh, for, for, to get the stuff, to get the good stuff. And so when Satan does that in our lives, are we going to respond like the Israelites, uh, raise up golden calves, um, uh, go hang out with uh, the idols of the Midianites? Uh, are we going res- to respond that way, or are we going to respond like Jesus did? So the question there is, are we excluding all idols from our lives, fearing and worshiping only Yahweh, as our Lord and maker. And especially, are we, doing, are we doing that when we're in the wilderness? Whether that's the voluntary wilderness of Lent, or whether that's the involuntary wilderness that will strike all of us at some point or another. I don't know about you, but when I'm under the pressure and under the affliction of the wilderness, uh, that is when all I care about in those moments is immediate relief. And at the moment, it's like, part of my brain disappears and and I am often at those moments willing to turn to anything uh, that is going to offer a relief in those moments of extreme duress. Are we going to be like the Israelites that way or are we going to be like Jesus? The second big lesson we're supposed to learn was this. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. This, of course, uh, the highlighted part, that's when uh, Jesus quotes this from the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, Satan comes to Jesus at this point and says, uh, you know, if you're really the son of God, then throw yourself down and the angels are going to sweep in and protect you and keep you from harming yourself. And, uh, and, and this refers back to the time, uh, the very time when, when Moses uh, was uh, struck the rock. He disobeyed God. He struck the rock instead of speaking to it. The water came out. And uh, it says there, in that explanation of that, in Exodus chapter 17, through verse 7, it says, the people at that time tested God by asking this question, is God really with us or not? All right, that's how they tested him at that point. Is God really with us or not? And that was in spite of the fact uh, God had revealed and proven that he was with them. He delivered them out of slavery from Egypt with the ten great plagues. He had parted the Red Sea for them. He had provided manna from heaven every day. He had miraculously performed sign and wonder after sign and wonder, miracle after miracle. 
and they were still asking because they were thirsty. They had a little bit gone for a, a little bit of time without any water, and they were a little bit thirsty. They said, is God really with us or not? All right, I want you to think about and ask yourself, <clears throat> almost everybody in this room I know has story after story of miracle after miracle God has done in your life. And you think about it, when you, and you think about the history of the miracles just in your personal life, all right, and yet you start feeling a little bit of thirst, a little bit of duress, and you start going, oh, is God really with us or not? Come on, God, do something. So are we going to respond like the Israelites did? Is God really with us or not? Test him that way? Or are we going to respond like Jesus did? <clears throat> are we trusting that he's with us and he is going to provide all for us. Third lesson they were supposed to learn. God says to them, or God says to Moses, who says to them, and he humbled you, and he let you be hungry. I want to pause there for a minute. He let you be hungry. A lot of times when we're hungry, when we're under duress, when we're under some kind of difficulty or or, or uh, affliction or trauma, we think, well, this must be some accident, or this must be the result of my poor planning, or someone else's poor planning, or uh, somebody, some human failed uh, to, you know, make sure I was, I was well fed. It says here that God let them be hungry. And the reason he let them be hungry was to humble them. And the reason he did that, so in, in their humility, in their hunger, that's when they were willing to eat this manna that was miraculously provided for them. And it says the reason he did that, according to this passage, is that he might make you understand. And, and this, is, this is so important, you guys. When he's saying this, this is the most important thing we need to understand. Is that we don't live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Thus, you are to know in your heart. God wanted the Israelites to have it so deep down inside of their heart that, that this is, this is a, this, to say, to know in your heart, that's this very old-fashioned biblical way of saying is like you really get it. It is so absorbed into the fiber of your being. You get this. God wanted the Israelites to get this so deeply. You know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you because he was angry because he was a nasty man, because he's not a very nice person. No, he was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. The way a loving father makes sure that his son is prepared for the difficulties of the future life uh, by, by putting boundaries on them, by disciplining out of love. God wanted the Israelites to know that in their heart, the depth of their being. Of course, Jesus quotes this when Satan comes to him and says, if you're really the son of God, uh, then turn this, these stones into bread. Uh, and <clears throat> Jesus could have done that, certainly. Uh, he had authority to do that. Uh, but instead, he quotes this. He, he says that he, do, he knows, the Israelites didn't know. They were whining and complaining about wanting to go back to Egypt so they can eat the leeks and the melons. They would rather be slaves and be able to eat melons and garlic uh, than <clears throat> this stuff they were bored with. And uh, they didn't get it, but Jesus got it. And he, uh, he knew 
that he lived by every word that came out of the mouth of the Lord. And so the, the question for us is, do we embrace the humbling of the wilderness and look to God as our provision? Do we embrace the humbling of the wilderness and look to God as our provision? I don't know about you, but when I'm in affliction, when I'm um, undergoing a trial, when I am enduring some kind of trauma, um, embracing the humility of that is often the last thing on my mind. Once again, I'm always thinking about how do I get out of this? How do I relieve this? How do I make this better as instantly, as quickly as I possibly can? And instead, what Jesus did, the Israelites didn't, but Jesus did, he embraced the humbling of this situation. So my question to us is when, when we are in the wilderness, whether it's the voluntary wilderness of Lent or whether it's the involuntary wilderness of, uh, of, of trials and difficulties, are we going to embrace that humbling of the wilderness? And are we going to look to God and towards nothing else as our provision? So this question, this, this question I want to, us to sit with is, have we really joined Jesus in the wilderness? A lot of us, we, we, love, we love to join him with the miracles. We're so excited about the miracles. We love to join him for the resurrection. We're there on Sunday morning. Woohoo! Yay, look at that empty tomb. I'm so excited about that. We love to join him uh, for the fun stuff. But if we're followers of Jesus, I've no, I noticed that lately. It's kind of trendy not to call yourself Christian anymore. I've noticed it's now trendy to call yourself a follower of Jesus. That is, you guys you call yourself a follower of Jesus instead of a, a Christian, uh, good for you, but that is a higher bar uh, because that means Jesus, you don't just follow him to the miracles, you don't just follow him to the resurrection, you don't just follow him to the healings and the deliverances, you follow him to the wilderness. You follow him and you follow where he went in the wilderness. And if you're able to follow him in the wilderness, then that means you're probably more able to follow him where he really wants you to come, which is the cross. Now, I'm going to say something weird here. Um, I hope you feel the impossibility of this within yourself. I hope when confronted with Am I going to react like the Israelites or am I going to react like Jesus when I'm in the wilderness? I, I hope you feel how impossible that is inside of you. See, the Israelites, we see this again and again and again throughout the book of Numbers, but everywhere in their whole story, they kept saying, oh, yeah, 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 we can do it. So God would put a demand on them and say, <clears throat> you know, now this is how you're supposed to act. And they would say, oh, yeah, oh, yep, we're doing it. Yep, we're, we're all there. We're ready to go. And it's usually verses later <laughs> that they are just losing it completely, falling apart, and running away from God, and failing, all right? <clears throat> but because Jesus embraced the humility of the wilderness, God gave him grace when he was in the wilderness to sustain him. And <clears throat> so the reaction is not the, the reaction God wants from us when we're in the wilderness is not like, yep, okay, all right, this, is, this sermon has roused me to now recommit myself to, I'm, I'm really going to try harder this time. No, if we embrace the humbling of the wilderness, then we're saying, yep, God, you, you have discovered in me 
that I don't have it in myself to follow you. You, you have revealed finally that uh, to myself, and I am now convinced of it, <clears throat> that there, there's no resource inside of me, no energy inside of me, no motivation, no determination inside of me that can truly follow you through the wilderness and all the way to the cross. And it's in that moment that like, like Jesus, who the Father sent angels to minister to him when he was in the wilderness, it's in that moment that God sends us grace to minister to us when we are in the wilderness. When we come to the end of ourselves, when we say, I don't have it in me, I will react like the Israelites if you don't send me your grace. It's in that moment that God sends us his grace. You're in the right place if you embrace that humbling and if you turn to God and look to him in that moment, and that's when he gives you the, his grace. That's, it's when we come to terms with the poverty of our own spirit. So if we could have the worship team come on back up. This uh, song that we're going to close with, it's, uh, it's a song of really embracing, embracing our humility and looking to God alone to, be, to give us the grace. If we uh, actually, Mark, could you put the, verse, the first verse up for the next song there? Um, <clears throat> so just I uh, want you to look at the words uh, before we start singing this. It says, uh, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. He says, child of weakness. We don't like to hear that from God. We like to hear him say the affirming things like, you really are a, all, all there is in a bag of chips. Um, <clears throat> but he looks at us tenderly, actually, and he says, child of weakness, watch and pray. Don't watch and pray because you've got it all together. You watch and pray because we are child of weakness, and we indeed are small. And then he says, find in me thine all in all. And so this song is an invitation to when you're in the wilderness, not to look inside of yourself and find the resources to follow him. It's to let the poverty of your spirit be exposed, let the weakness be exposed, your smallness be exposed, and you turn to him and you find in him your all in all. You find out that he paid it all. Um, you find out that you owe everything to him, even though sin, your sin, had left a crimson stain that should be a permanent mark on your character and a permanent mark to uh, exclude you from eternal joy with God. And instead, he has washed it completely as white as snow. So there's nothing left. So I want to invite you as we sing through this, let the poverty of your spirit be exposed. Turn to him. Look to him to be your all in all.